This is Ibrooks, The Interviews. I'm Martin Douglas, and joining me today, as ever, we have Tommy McIntyre. Tommy, how are you? I am great, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I'm very excited to say we're joined by professional tennis player, Castor Ambassador, Lauren Jones. Lauren, how are you? Good, thank you. Nice to join you guys. Yes, if only they could see the outtakes. Um, so, so listen, it will get better. Yes, yes, forever professional. Um, listen, I thought we would we would start because you've done a few interviews, so I thought we would start right at the very, very beginning. So, what was a young Lauren Jones like? Um, similar to how I am now, very competitive, uh, very driven, very ambitious, um, very stubborn. So a strong personality, I think I always have been. Um, probably not quite as self-aware. I think obviously everything I've gone through is, to, I, I think a lot. And I think when I was younger, obviously I'd, maybe it was just slightly more relaxed in terms of my views towards things. Whereas now I'm quite passionate about, about my, my approach to things. But yeah, I've always been competitive and driven and, and ambitious really. So basically a nightmare for your parents. <laughs> Yeah, I think I was a, a strong willed is something they have always described described me. But yeah, I think for teachers as well and potentially coaches, but in a way that they like, because I've always been I, I engaged in things. Um, so potentially not the easiest to work with, but if I understand what I'm doing and why, then I'll give it 100%. And I think that's always been the case. Well, there's a, there's a question. Um, the Lauren Jones now, if you were able to go back and give that younger Lauren Jones a little bit of advice and insight, having cycled through everything you've or lived through everything you've lived through, what would that advice be and why? Um, I feel like that's quite a deep question that people are normally like, hey, you can have a week to prepare for this question. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're just going to, going to come out thick and fast. I'm just yeah. going to sit here and then just toss these pebbles into the water as <laughs> uh, essentially what I'm going to do during this. No, I think um, for me it would be... Um, I think everyone goes through negative experiences and challenges um, and a lot of people do tend to feel sorry for themselves or say why me or get overwhelmed when you end up in a situation that you haven't planned for or is going to be difficult to overcome uh, and for me I've found obviously that's happened to me quite a few times um, and I have managed to get to a point where every time something negative happens to me or I find myself in a situation that was not part of the plan and I don't want to be in, I've managed to flip it and turn it into a positive. Um, and I think that's something that, I mean, if, if you've got positive situations and everything happening in your life, that's great. And then you still think, oh, I also back myself to come up with a positive when I, when I'm thrown some, without swearing, I don't know quite what to say, but throw, swear throw away, swear away. You're an adult podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, so I think that's something that I now live by and it makes me feel much better because even recently having my diagnosis of Crohn's and everything, I was focused on the, on the Paralympics and then got diagnosed with Crohn's, had major surgery and was out for quite a while. And instead of feeling really down about that and, and upset about what, how it would negatively affect me, I started focusing on my relationships with my sponsors and partners. And I think that's helped me get to where I am today, which now supports my tennis career. So I really turned that into a positive. And I think realizing how I managed to do that 
made me think about how how I managed to do that and I think coming coming through so many obstacles in my life and and I, yeah I think that's my technique of doing things really I, I just don't want to feel sorry for myself and have no interest in complaining about things so just try to find the positive out of every situation so I think my advice would be to try and get my younger self doing that straight away rather than having to go through that process but yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the advice we would all give our younger selves, isn't it? <laughs> um, <clears throat> but going back to when you were you were uh, really young, what were your parents like when you growing up? Were they quite liberal or were they quite strict? Or? Um, I think my, my parents are very competitive themselves um, and also driven and ambitious and uh, I think they wanted me to achieve um, but weren't pushy parents in terms of they, they let me and my brother go out and focus on what we wanted to focus on. And I think for both of us, a big part of that was sport. Uh, but my brother, for example, has ended up in politics um, in Scotland, actually, at St. Andrews. So we're, Scotland's just seems to be, we're getting everything <laughs> to Scotland right now. But um, yeah, I think we've, we are strong personalities. And I think we've had a lot of banter in the family and constantly taking the piss out of each other and also pushed each other to succeed and not just settle. Um, and that was a big part of my childhood and even though at school I didn't always fully engage with everything I was never prepared to just live a normal life I always knew that I wanted to succeed but for me I felt like maybe my grades in school weren't part of that I felt like I could achieve in other ways so even though I didn't necessarily apply myself in school the way that some kids might I applied myself in in life and really threw myself in at the deep end and also socially in terms of how I engaged with people and yeah, so I think um, my parents definitely brought us up to be creative and, and determined and not just settle for anything. And obviously when I had my accident, I could have just settled that, oh, this is my life now and that's not great. But I wasn't interested in doing that and everything I was told to do, I basically tried to push the boundaries and, and come up with another way or, yeah, I, I don't think I would ever settle for anything. So do you think that your kind of emphasis on kind of sport and stuff, because obviously you played football as a, as a kid and stuff like that as well, were you more focused in your mind that I'm going to be a sports person no matter what sport it is rather than schoolwork? Was school kind of secondary to the life you wanted to live? Um, I mean, when I was younger, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew it was always being sport. Mm. Um, obviously, I played football and was fully focused on, on a career playing professionally. Um, but for me, it was, okay, I want to focus on that, but also maybe I could go into physiotherapy or sports science or there were, there was always sport was definitely the, the theme. And then it was just where I would go outside of that. Um, and obviously with my accident, it kind of shaped the way down Paralympic sport. And, and now for me as well, I'm still, I have two careers in a way where I'm not only focusing on my tennis but also public speaking and ambassadorial roles and working with charities and things like that so I'm still looking to have a career outside of tennis that still comes through my experiences as an athlete so in a way nothing's changed but obviously a lot has changed at the same time. <laughs> I was just wondering was there, a, was there a moment that pushed you towards the football initially or were there a whole host of sports that you're looking at um, uh, maybe pulls football off the shelf given it's, it's the UK and it's the global game but I'm just wondering for you specifically why did football be the, be the starting point for you? Uh, the moment was just my dad uh, he is just football obsessed um, my mum can't stand football 
Um, although we've managed to get her watching a few games, but yeah, dad's just a massive football fan and, and a good player and used to play a lot himself. And he got a, a really bad injury. And I think without that, could have got to a, a really good level. So I think the drive came from him because he knew he had good genes and he knew he had talent. And for him, he could never actually pursue a career in football. Uh, so literally me and my brother were taught to kick a ball with both, both feet since we could walk. Um, my mum's actually got a horse racing background and worked for the Brit with the British team. So for her, it was like, oh, get on a horse, get on a horse. But both me and my brother chose football and yeah, it was just, yeah, so, such a competitive family that we used to be in the back garden trying to kick a ball around together. And I was always trying to be skillful and run rings around my brother and dad and my brother just used to try and chop me up in the air but football just naturally was a part of, of our upbringing and I just loved it and still do. Just on that uh, your dad there with that injury you were saying if he didn't get it he could have played at a higher level so see when he got his injury was he playing for Redden? Um, to be honest I don't know exactly what age he was um, but yeah he was living in Reading and playing football at the time um, but he, he was a very talented footballer and I think he, he thrives in getting out old newspaper articles about him. There's a headline that says, um, Super Jones goes it alone and it's something that is like <laughs> in my memory. It's like every time there's an article done about me or I win a title, he's always like, look my trophy. <laughs> so even then he's getting competitive with me about his, uh, his, yeah, his experiences in football. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say exactly what level he would have got to, but you can, uh, even recently he played in a leisure leagues team, which is like a five-a-side local tournament. And my brother had a team with all of his mates who were in their teens. And my dad was 50s at this point, And he used to just run rings around every little kid who's full of testosterone. <laughs> it just used to make him look stupid. But it was quite interesting to watch because he knew what he wanted to do, but his feet couldn't quite keep up because obviously mm -hmm. he's got a bit old and fat. But <laughs> so yeah, it's wrong <laughs> I've got that problem and I'm 30, you know what I mean? <laughs> I struggle to get off the couch. <laughs> I've positioned the camera very strategically so it looks as though I need to Just pop the bottom half off. <laughs> That's exactly it. It just all started to balloon after this part, to be honest with you. It just goes wider and wider. But uh, just to jump in again, and half the reason I'm doing this is because it's completely messing up Martin's question set, which I always <laughs> try to do in any uh, interviewer podcast. But, you know, we're jumping back and forward here, which I think is quite, quite interesting. I'm just wondering, to be a little bit more serious for a moment, when you had your accident and were no, able, no longer able to, to compete in football, I'm just wondering, did you, was your dad able to use his experience of picking up that injury that stopped him from doing a game or competing a game he loved? Was that something that really drew you guys together? Was that, was that useful for you to be hearing that from your dad? I think potentially that would have played a part in it in that my dad is extremely determined um, and both my parents are, but it's actually a conversation we were having in the back garden recently as a family and we asked my dad what he thought his best trait was, what he thought his biggest strength was and he said determination. Um, so maybe that's where I get it from. Um, but the second I had my accident, the my parents did kind of sit back to a certain extent and let me face things because they wouldn't want to be too pushy and, and overbearing but it was very much don't feel sorry for yourself there's so many more things that you can still achieve and I think maybe my dad's got his own business and obviously that comes with its own difficulties and my dad actually lost his business when I had my accident because of the time he had to spend looking after me so that it just it's part of the, the family history I think where when you're faced with challenges you just there's no point in sulking you just have to 
fight basically and get back and and achieve and I think when I had my accident maybe my parents past experiences of what they've gone through and yeah probably the the end of my dad's footballing career um would have played a part in that yeah so we've kind of scuttered around it, so we'll discuss it now, um, your accident. Um, you've obviously, you've spoken in, in length about it, so I think everybody knows the details, but could you maybe run us through what happened again? Because there's a specific question about it that I want to ask you. I feel like I know, I know what this question is. <laughs> I feel like I know what the question is. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's common knowledge to a certain extent that I fell out of a tree which isn't particularly exciting and it's something that on tour you've got incredible athletes who come from different backgrounds and there's some great stories I mean not great but some of them are really quite impressive and then I'm just like yeah I fell out of a tree it's not particularly impressive and something that I think everyone has has done in their life every kid climbs trees um but I was meant to be cleaning my my best friend's family's boat um mm. and a of at the age of 13, that's not something that is particularly appealing. Uh, so we just snuck off and took a football to the, the beach part of the marina and we were having a kick about and ended up climbing a tree. And yeah, I, 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 as I was saying before, I think this is something that is now known, but actually it's not something I remember myself, but I've had to ask people and, and I've been told information, but I went to lean on a branch and the branch broke and I fell, fell 20, 25 foot in total. And that's how I broke my back. Before we get into the more serious aspects of the injury and stuff like that and how you and your family coped, what type of boat was it? <laughs> I feel like there needs to be some sort of content here and that we've kind of <laughs> done I think the important thing, Warren, is if you do not have an answer to hand to you, given all the... Then <laughs> all bets are off. If you have to do the minimum amount of research for your own story. Yes. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I honestly don't really know. I'm going to go with sailing boat. Um, not not a massive yacht, that would be impressive. Uh, not a dinghy, maybe something in the middle of the two. Uh, I think it was a sailing boat, yeah, but I haven't gone and done my research about this. See, that's shocking because we've been talking for at least three weeks now and it's the one question I keep on asking you and you just refuse to answer it. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I think in my own head, it's a big massive yacht then, isn't it? It's got to be. We'll go for that, we'll go for that. <laughs> there hasn't actually been any internet problems at all, I just haven't wanted to talk about the boat. <laughs> <laughs> the, the quick way to these types of things is, was there a helicopter pad on the boat? Yes. No, no. It would have been helpful though, because I that's needed a start to, Yeah, well that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. That's how you start to kind of segment it. If it's got its own helicopter pad, Probably not a boat. Uh, no, no. If that was the situation, I might not need any sponsorship in the end anyway. But... <laughs> well, um, I don't know if anybody ever touched on the fact that, you know, where there's blame, there is a claim. On, and so, uh, you know, you can always go for compensation on the fact that they allowed that to happen. Oh, God, no, no, no. No, my, they're my best friend and uh, my best friend's parents. So I think there was enough going on, bless them. <laughs> right, so obviously... Again, I keep repeating myself, but you've done a, a few interviews and you've spoke about, you know, your, your time in the hospital and stuff. But just before we come to that, I thought I would, we would maybe take a wee scut around the kind of mental health side of stuff as well. And I suppose the first kind of question I've got is, what was your kind of friend's reaction at the time? Can you remember? Obviously, when, you, when you've woke up in the hospital and stuff, how did your friend and her family kind of cope with it at the beginning? Um, I mean, to be honest, I was very drugged up and out of it for a long period of time and don't remember 
a lot of um, my recovery and everything. But I know that um, when I first had my accident, everything went black and there was just one moment where I saw my best friend. And that was when I was with the, um, I think it was potentially air ambulance um, paramedics and things like that. And I just saw my best friend and then I was out of it again. Um, and I was with her brother as well at the time. And I know that they were obviously still young themselves and had to, to phone their parents and try to explain what was happening and, and get the, the medical help that I needed. And also they knew not to move me because I was screaming in pain. And I think they knew straight away that it was serious. And I was obviously in agony, but also stressing and, and freaking out because I couldn't feel my legs. So there was a lot of pressure on them to try to look after me. And obviously being 13, and I think my brother's, uh, my best friend's brother was only uh, 16 himself. So yeah, it was, um, I would imagine a traumatic time for them initially. And even when I then ended up in hospital, I wasn't well enough to actually be able to engage in conversation. But I remember my best, my best friend and her family just bringing me McDonald's, trying to get me to have an appetite or just sitting by my bedside when I couldn't actually even be conscious. I would just sleep because I was obviously so, so tired and having all the effects of the medication. So I remember them being there for me through the whole period. And yeah, we just became closer. And obviously we've been best friends since we were about six years old and still best friends today at 24. And we're a close, close family. And, and she's just a, a massive part of that. But I know she really struggled and I think it was something that, I mean, one of the things we always joke about, but when I think back to it, it must have been traumatic for her is even when I came out of hospital and things started to return to more normality, we went back, back, back to school together and there was a rumor that she'd actually pushed me out of the tree. And obviously she's like, everyone was coming up to me like, why are you still friends with her? And I was like, what are they going on about? I literally haven't been here for months and I'm coming back to being questioned by all these kids I'm not even friends with saying, why am I still friends with my best mate? And yeah, there was, um, I can imagine it was difficult for the school to handle. They had to give assemblies, give an update that obviously a child in their school and someone that everyone knew as a fellow student was having to go through these life-changing experiences and would be coming back to school and they had to prepare the kids to see that because even as, even as an outsider I can imagine that would have had an effect on a lot of people in my year group um so yeah it was a traumatic time for everyone and obviously a lot changed but in the end it was something that, that brought us all even closer together and yeah hopefully I, th I think we helped each other I think my positive attitude and me not wanting to just feel sorry for myself hopefully gave them something to hold on to and help push them through but also the fact that everyone around me supported me and I saw them being there for me and my friend used to come and feed me and we used to laugh about the fact she used to give me mouthfuls that were just huge that I just end up dropping the food all over myself or try and play catch and try and use the the basketball net that I've talked about where that I made it in the hospital just yeah I think we supported each other and helped put each other through. I was just I was at, when I was um, putting up the agenda for the interview one of the thoughts that came to my head was for, for your, your friend, your best friend who was there, just to even see something like that at such a young age, that must have had lasting effects as well, just as, as a kind of trauma. Yeah, definitely. And it, where my injury was so bad, I actually landed on a branch on the way down. And it wasn't the fall itself on the ground that injured me. I landed on my stomach on, a, on quite a, a thick branch and my spine just popped. So I think she, she would have seen the actual my spine didn't come out my back but a lump did where my spine broke and I think if she saw that as well as hearing the screaming and everything it just would have been absolutely traumatic and something that 
we've talked about but also not talked about i think mm -hmm. that to a certain extent you don't want to think about those details and maybe we've both chosen to just completely forget part of it because it's just it's not much point in remembering the details like how you scream in pain and yell and get and you're scared there's not much point in remembering that to that extent um but i'm sure it's something that still sticks with her and yeah i'm uh it obviously still hurts me that that's something that's on so close to me had to go through um and also for her family obviously the guilt that they must have felt even though it wasn't their fault to have to phone my parents and explain that i've had such a severe injury and be there through that i mean yeah and thankfully my parents being level-headed and nice humans i completely understood that there was no fault on them at all and it it was i think as smooth as it could have been for us to all come out of that positively i think there's you know not to dwell on that let's call it survivor's guilt that your your friend maybe is is, is worked through as well but i'm just really interested we you know we, we will speak a lot and i'm sure you know in your other interviews as well you've spoken a lot about you know lauren jones the athlete that accident and lauren jones the recovery of the athlete and that type of thing i'm just wondering 13's a hell of an age and it's a hell of a lot to try and process at that point in time so I'm really interested in Lauren Jones, the young girl at that point. You wake up back in the hospital, and not to dwell on, you know, what happens in the hospital itself, because I, I know we, you know, don't want to run over, you know, and keep telling that particular story. But I'm just really interested about how you start to process that or how you started to process that as a young girl. And because, you know, strip out the fact you're a girl, obviously, but that's a really young, tender age, and you're still finding your, your way in the world. How did that work? That must have been really difficult. I take it there was support from the hostel there as well? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's a time when I think everyone tends to find themselves. Um, and there was support offered to me, but I used to run in the opposite direction. And it was actually a running joke with me and my friends who I was in rehab with later down the line in Stoke Mandeville that the second I knew the psychologist was coming on the ward, I just used to hide. I think at one point I hid in the kitchen public. But the reason for that was not because I didn't want to talk about it and accept it. It was that I had accepted it at this point and I was willing to talk about it, but I would talk about it with my friends about how we can get through it, how it will be okay. I didn't want to have a conversation with someone where they made me feel so incapable. The conversation was literally, and I remember having a conversation with, with this psychologist and my mum before, because I'd avoided the meeting for so long, I had to get my mum to come in, like a, a naughty school kid, <laughs> to have the meeting with me and the psychologist. And I was expecting to get told off by my mum. And we sat there and the psychologist said, um, See, so how are you feeling in that very much like, so how are you feeling? Oh. Um, and then it was, because I mean, I would understand if you were struggling and depressed, because I mean, if I was in your situation, I would be. And I was just like, Jesus, like, that's <laughs> my mom, my mom was like, you know what? She's doing really well and she's perfectly fine. Or she was until she talked to you and I'm going to remove her from this situation now. <laughs> it was very much, it was just, for me, I wanted to still feel like a complete capable person and I knew I was facing challenges and I knew that there would be times when I would struggle and I knew I was struggling with certain things, but I didn't see a point in basically, I felt like they, want, they wanted me to be like that because that was the norm. Yeah. And I just wasn't feeling that. I wanted to try and overcome things and yeah, that was my way of dealing with it. Um, and I think through my period of time in hospital, everything I was told I, I couldn't do, I just, I wanted to try first. And if I tried a few times and still couldn't do it, then I'd try a few more times. If I tried 
consistently and failed consistently, then maybe I'd slightly tweak it and try a slightly different way. But I wasn't prepared to just accept, oh, that's your disability. You now can no longer get dressed by yourself or you can't do this or you can't do this. Um, and I just pushed final, So just a final question on that, uh, Lauren. I, I get the feeling I'm starting to draw a thread of, of who Lauren Jones is. But I'm, I'm sensing that people continually being surprised by your is, well, it's surprising in itself for those people, but I'm sensing it's something you actually quite enjoy. Is that, is that right to say you like proving people wrong when they see something and then you say, actually, that's not what's happening behind the scenes. This is who I am and I'll show you what I can achieve. Is that, is that a fair caption of you? Yeah, I think that's actually pretty spot on. And I think that's something that because I experienced that initially and felt like that helped me, it's something I live by. And I mean, it, it's, I, it's, it's public knowledge that I haven't competed in my first Grand Slam yet. Um, but the, the support I have from incredible sponsors and people that I work with is potentially unprecedented for people who aren't at the Slams. And the level of support I'm getting and, and everything is not, it, I back myself for more than I'm actually doing a lot of the time. And I'm still at the very beginning of my tennis journey. But why does that mean that, oh, well, you can't actually be successful till you get to the Grand Slams? I want to achieve before. I want to kind of break break the mold. And I think that's something that really helps me. And yeah, I sometimes you're told that, I don't know, Paralympic sport hasn't quite got the gauge that, that able-bodied sport has. Um, so therefore, a lot of athletes think, oh, there's not as much money in, in Paralympic sport, so I can't make a living out of it. Or it, there's a lot of things that are kind of normal, and I just don't have any interest in that. I back myself to come up, to be creative, and to... I feel like my story's given me something. Um, and yeah, it's something that I live by and is really helping me. Can I just also point out that when Tommy was asking his last question and he asked who Lauren Jones was, and I says mental, I meant in a good way. Just for <laughs> any, just for anybody watching in case they take any offence to that. I just want to point out here, Lauren, what I'm up against. Every <laughs> As I try and ask some, some really good questions and hold a, hold a decent line, this is what I have to deal with on a, and by the way, if anybody wonders, I'm pointing because that's where you are on the screen, Martin. That's what I have to deal with on a, on a weekly basis. So if you can try and train him up as well, Lauren, I'm Absolutely. really that. Listen, I, I've seen some of Lauren's early interviews when she was young, when she first took up tennis. Like that, that, that's right, you know. Did you look did you look them up by the way, just really quickly on a side note? Did you look them up? Yeah, yeah. I I wish I could do them, but they're there. <laughs> and now you've got to go on this one. <laughs> yep. If anybody listening, go on YouTube, type in Lauren Jones, and you'll see her at 13. Absolutely ripping the interviewer. But listen, um, we you mentioned your mum there. So um, kind of similar question to the, the, the kind of best friend question, but how were your mum and dad in the beginning? Because you've spoke quite a lot about your mum and dad and how they're positive people, how they're determined people. Were they very realistic with you at the beginning or did you feel the kind of same way at the beginning you did with the kind of psychologist? Um, no, I mean, I, I think for me, I felt support from them. Um, and the main thing is I just felt support and love and understanding from them. And as much as they're driven and wanted to push me, I think they knew that then was not the time. And it was nice to just feel that love. And like I was saying about, about the psychologist earlier, I mean, that, that, I don't want that to sound bad because actually mm -hmm. now working with my sports psychologist and working with a with the psychologist myself in terms of 
I've learned so much about myself and grown so much as a person and and it really helps to actually talk about things but I think the key thing for me was that I wanted to open up and talk to people who supported me and encouraged me to be better than what happened to me in a way not just settle whereas I felt like some people maybe just felt sorry for me and were like oh it's okay for you to just feel sad and be okay with this situation you're now in because it's not your fault whereas a lot of people around me were like I back you you're an incredible person like yes this is rubbish but you can still achieve so many great things like look at this person look at this Paralympic sport look at how this person with your disability can now do this and it was yeah it was an attitude from my parents that I don't know if it was actually intentional or not but they managed to help me see that there was life after my accident without pushing me and I, I just felt love and support from them and also still our family network I mean they used to come and visit me and we used to still take rip into each other and watch tv together and play games and have a laugh um, and I know that looking back at interviews that I did when I first had my accident um, also terribly embarrassing um, <laughs> but my, my parents uh, said I can't remember exactly what it was my mom said but it was something like um, it's Lauren that's pulling us through this mm -hmm. and you can visibly see and I can see now when I watched the interviews back how much they were struggling and I mean it, to the point where like I said earlier my dad lost his business at, at that time I didn't even know that until years after my accident because they didn't want me to feel like that was my fault they didn't want to put that on me they just got on with it um and I think that just sums them up really I think that because the the, the big thing there they're saying that, that you pulled them through because I think for a lot of parents no matter how positive um the, the, the child is if something like that happens there's a lot of parents that wouldn't be able to get over that so I think that the fact that your parents were uh, really supportive and were really determined and were able to get over it as well that that must really help you push through as well yeah I think obviously it, it was a team effort and I guess looking back on it the fact that I wasn't willing to settle and feel sorry for myself and wanted to push myself meant that I still had achievement even if it was small thing things like feeding myself it meant that one week they would they'd come and visit on a Monday and we were told I, you can't feed yourself it's too painful she needs to sleep etc then they'd come the next day and I was feeding myself it, it was a quick progression and I think it was that that helped them but also for me it, it was just the constant support of when i couldn't do something them not saying yeah but you need to accept you can't do this they i don't think they ever said that to me I, and i think it was if i was upset i couldn't do something they'd be like yeah but that's okay but just keep trying and i think maybe that was the where the combination worked so was that we'll, we'll kind of move on to more about you now and obviously you've spoke a lot about how positive and determined and you, you, were, you were going to do this and you were going to do that but was there ever any point that you just you, you woke up or you just maybe had a half an hour where you went I can't do this? I think um, there were a lot of times when I struggled and actually one of the main memories I have uh, is I made lifelong friends in hospital with um, a girl called Agnes and a guy called Henry and they were in the same ward as me, very similar ages, and had also had their accidents a similar time to me. And we were going through rehab together, but both Henry and Agnes were paralyzed from the neck down. So they couldn't move their arms as well as their legs. So one of the things that I remember feeling is, how can I feel sorry for myself? How can I be upset when I'm so much better off than they are? And I thought that that helped me at the time. And in a way, maybe it did, but looking back, 
and a conversation that I have had with, with my psychologist at the moment um, is that I felt like I couldn't grieve for what I had lost and like I wasn't going through much myself compared to them. Um, so I think one of the memories I have of being upset in hospital were actually crying about, about Agnes and Henry and how I'm struggling so much, but I haven't lost as, as much as they've lost. So I don't feel like I should be upset. And obviously that's quite a pressure to feel at that age. Um, so I think that was the, the main thing I struggled with, feeling like I had lost a lot, but maybe couldn't feel upset about it. Uh, but at the same time, it, it really helped me as well because it just shows you that yes, things, bad things can happen, but they can always be worse. And it's just so true. And it's really special to me that I've managed to have lifelong friends in, in Agnes and Henry. And I think um, Henry Fraser, just for a bit of background, is uh, a mouth artist and he's actually, he's very well known and he's got two books out, one called um, The Little Big Things. And he talks a bit about our experiences in hospital together and how I was this crazy ball of energy, <laughs> um, but how I helped him get, get through rehab. And obviously for me, it was the same. And Agnes, Agnes's story, I'm sure she won't mind me saying because she's always been, I think, one of the biggest inspirations to me. Um, Agnes actually had an accident where she was paralyzed from the neck down, but also lost her mum in, in the accident. So, I mean, if you imagine being a 13-year-old child who is having to go through losing movement of your whole body, as well as losing a, your biggest support network. I mean, it was just, it was a, a crazy period of time. And I think I was just shocked by everything that was happening to me and the people around me. But in that situation, we had three kids who just connected and pulled each other through. And now if you look at what we're achieving, achieving, it's amazing. So yeah, I think as much as I could have memories where I was really struggling in hospital, my memories actually tend to evolve around Agnes and Henry and, and how much of a nightmare I was for the nurses. Um, trying to push the boundaries and then trying to control me to a certain extent, but yeah. As Martin says, you know, obviously moving away, you know, from that and you know, inspirational stories of, uh, of Agnes and Henry there as well. I'm just interested in one thing you mentioned. So not, not particularly speaking about the accident anymore or anything like that, but talking about obviously you're currently speaking to you know, psychologists or whatever that looks like. I'm just wondering, some of those hangovers from the accident and the rehabilitation work you've done and all that, is some of that needing to be unpicked or worked on through the lens of your current sporting performance in terms of in those difficult moments on the court? You just need to know exactly who you are in your own mind and how you treat those circumstances. Is that maybe the focus there? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's something that obviously going through such an experience, I have to be able to have to think about what actually happened and be okay with that um and i think i was forced to grow up quite early and that's something that has helped me and i am very open as a person i'm quite sensitive but also quite comfortable talking about my feelings and and what i've gone through um and yeah i think it's something that obviously with my tennis career is hopefully going to help me um and, and gives me hopefully an, a, an advantage to a certain extent but yeah, the, the mental side of the game is something that I know is key for me because I feel like the ability is there, um, the potential is there, but I just get, I'm so hard on myself um, and I really need to be able to just try to accept making mistakes and, and be okay with losing. And obviously to someone who's just naturally so competitive and a perfectionist and expects a lot from themselves, that's quite, um, 
quite a challenging thing to do, but I'm getting there. And it is interesting when I have conversations with my psychologist and my sports psychologist, how a lot of my personality traits obviously come from childhood and my upbringing, but also a lot of who I am today does come from how I dealt with my accident and how I overcome it and I overcame it. And I think in every situation, there's a positive and a negative and a lot of how I dealt with what happened to me has really helped me. But like I explained earlier, maybe a part of it has also forced me to um, hold certain things in. So it's nice to be comfortable enough in myself to be able to actually delve into that a bit deeper. And since I've been able to do that, it's really started to help help my tennis. So yeah, I think it's a, a massive part of who I am today and is really helping me in my tennis career. Can you not just do what Andy Murray does and get somebody to sit in your box and then when you make a mistake, just abuse them? Well, maybe you that, guys. That, <laughs> if you want to pay me to do that, I'm more than happy to come and sit. No problem. That's what, that's what Andy Murray does, and it seemed to help him. Because I don't know, what was the coach's name? Was it Ivan Wendell, I think his name was? Yeah. Um, yeah. He, just, he just used to sit there, and that was his happy face. I, I can see the logic behind it. And, I mean, I guess it's, it's similar to when I play doubles at the moment. And for a, quite a long period of time, I, I actually really preferred doubles and felt I was more successful in doubles because I just used to turn into the team player, which obviously being a footballer maybe that's the where that developed but I just used to go to support my doubles partner and in doing so I didn't have all the time to think about telling myself off or what I was doing wrong and and really putting myself down whereas when I play singles that's what I do so I guess if you deflect that onto someone else then at least you're not doing it to yourself so your performance isn't negatively impacted but yeah I think um I guess my coach would be okay with that but I feel like my mum <laughs> might <laughs> I should point out as well from a just from a balancing narrative here. We spoke to all your your doubles partners who told a totally different story. Yeah. They said you are a stone cold nightmare to, yeah. uh, to to play with, and they they wish they'd taken up badminton. That's really? that's how bad you were. What was it? What was it they said, Tommy? They said Lauren, it's never her fault. It's always her fault. That was that, yeah, that was the exact words. Yeah, although a couple of them did say Lauren who. Yeah. Uh, there was there was definitely a few of them who said that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've read some Celtic comments that say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that'll just get progressively, progressively worse. They are, um, they're not a nuanced bunch. Let's put it that way. Put it, put it this way: they'll know, they'll know more about you than what you do, long, right? But anyway, yeah. um, so why tennis? Because I'm not going to lie to you. I've watched wheelchair tennis over the years, and just from a personal point of view, it looks exhausting. It is, yes. <laughs> um, I think for me it was the most challenging, um, which is very strange because you'd think after someone who's just come through probably the biggest challenge that you're likely to face in your life, why would you just go for something that's going to challenge you even more? Um, but I think there were a few Paralympic sports where I felt like disability was a massive part of it, which is fine because obviously disability is a massive part of Paralympic sport. But for me, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I wanted to be talented and skilled at something. I wanted to push myself and I didn't want to just be doing something that's like, yeah, at least I'm disabled, but I can still play a bit of sport. I didn't want it to be like that. I wanted to really be successful. Um, and when I when I came, I think my first tournament I, I've mentioned in a previous interview, I actually saw Gordon Reed play, who's a massive Rangers fan. And I remember watching him and his team and just being amazed by the fact that 
obviously I, I wasn't a coach or anything, but I honestly could not see a difference between the way he was playing and the way that his able-bodied hitting partner was hitting. And to look at someone who, to me, looked like he was just as good as tennis as Andy Murray, I was like, wow, that is incredible. Because yeah, he's in a chair, but he's still so skilled. And that really appealed to me. And I didn't think I would ever be able to be anything like that level. Uh, but I wanted to push myself to try and just see what happened. Uh, and then, yeah, having a successful junior career, I think, is where I noticed that, like, oh, actually, maybe I, I could get to that level. I could get to the stands. And that really gave me a boost. So I'm very pleased with my decision. And I feel like maybe if I'd chosen a different sport, maybe I would have been at the top already. I don't know. I can't say that because I've been a part of it, but maybe I would have achieved more than what I've achieved right now. Um, I don't know, but I'm very happy with the, the choice I made. Um, and yeah, I'm still up for the challenge. Right at the very beginning of your uh, wheelchair tennis career, I think you were given an award. Um, I did have it wrote down, but I've lost my notes because as Tommy will tell you, I research everything. Right? But I was about maybe a year into your tennis career. And if anybody Tell wants... Single week with every <laughs> single week. If you, if you want, if, if the viewers or listeners want to go on to YouTube, there's a fantastic interview with Lauren. I think she's maybe 14, and you've been interviewed at an awards ceremony. And honestly, you're you're, you're brilliant at getting interviewed. I'm what? Sorry. You're brilliant at getting interviewed. I'll take it, but I, that is not what I think when I watch back my own interview. I, I, have to, I have to jump in here because eventually the, the pedantic nature of, uh, of grammar is going to get the better of me. Being interviewed. Ah, Maybe that's not true. getting interviewed, being interviewed. You're probably going to get an interview. There you go. You know what I mean? God, I, I, listen, the grammar on this episode of the podcast, and by the way, Lauren, I'm completely blaming you. <laughs> has to, has to be, we have to increase the standard of this. Um, in, the, in, well, in this lull then, I'll ask about the, if you don't mind, Martin. Is, uh, I do mind. Thing, I do too mind. Bad. I've already started, so I'm not going to finish. Um, it would be the case of you get to you know a certain standard, you've got automatic qualification for real. And I, I'm just wondering, you pick up the, the injury that, that takes that away from you. We've already discussed, you, you know, everything else you've been through in your life, but I'm just wondering the difference in that because you worked so hard and have, hearing the bodies let you down and you can't go to Rio, that must have been a terribly difficult professional moment. Yeah, I think I've had, I've had a few setbacks in terms of injury and illness. Um, and I mean, it may not be accurate to say, but obviously when I was in juniors, Alfie Hewitt was um, the number one boy and I was the number one girl. And Alfie has been incredibly successful, got to world number one, won the Sams and, and medals and everything. Um, and sometimes I look at his career and think, oh, I wonder if that would be me right now if I hadn't had injuries. And obviously that's, I can't say that because he's incredibly talented and has worked incredibly hard, but I do feel like it set me back quite a way. Um, which has been hard to take, but at the same time, I feel like it's made me even more resilient and I've had to draw on my past experiences to help me get through those difficult times. And I've still chosen to, to stick at it. And I still believe that I can achieve in tennis. And I think that's something that hopefully when I get to those match point moments, then hopefully I can think of everything that I've overcome to get there and, and help it help use that to help give me confidence and, and just push me over the line. So yeah, I think it's just, um, I don't 
it would have been great not to have them, but at the same time, I think hopefully it gives me an edge um, and is just part of, of my tennis journey. Um, and I look to people like Alfie really to, as inspiration because he's, uh, he's really shown what, what you can achieve. So, yeah. And just on kind of setbacks, I know it's been a setback for everybody, but how has the coronavirus kind of affected your, your plans going forward as well? Because, I mean, and, and like I say, I know it affects everybody. You can't maybe go and train as much. But how has that affected you for your kind of plans going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a crazy period of time, to be honest. I was training full-time in London. Um, and the first thing was to get out of London, uh, get to the countryside and move back with my parents to be just not exposed to as many people because I am extremely high risk with being um, paralyzed, but also having Crohn's I'm on tablets, which are immunosuppressants and make my immune system vulnerable. So it's, uh, it was quite a scary time initially, but, um, but we found a way to try to, to make it as, as try to make the most of the time as much as we possibly can. But obviously I haven't been able to train at all on, on a tennis ball. So it was just right. Let's use this time to bulk up and, yeah, I feel like I'm going to be going back to tennis, like looking like Hulk with a massive game <laughs> which is positive. But uh, in terms of actually hitting a tennis ball, I'm not sure how great that's going to be. But I've, um, I am back on court, so it's, it's very early days. So hopefully I'll be back training full time as soon as possible. But the main thing is just to stay safe and healthy because obviously that's been the priority throughout this block. And it has given me a chance to focus on on other things outside of my career and prepare for when I get back competing and push on for the, the Paralympics, hopefully. So, yeah. What is the scheduling like then? Because we've obviously seen the return of the US Open. Um, and I believe I was speaking to you as well that it was just going to be, uh, sorry, the, the wheelchair tennis wasn't going to be allowed to, to come back. But I believe you said that they've changed, they kind of changed their minds on that. So going forward for you schedule-wise, what's, what's the kind of first competition that you're looking um, to take part in? Um, there hasn't been a tournament program released yet. So I'm not sure exactly what tournaments are running. I just know which tournaments have been cancelled. So I know that obviously every tournament I have planned to do this year, I, I don't currently have an opportunity to play that. Um, so I think we're just going to have to see. I don't actually know when I'm going to be able to be back competing. Um, but the main thing for me and my coach is that we are back on court now and we're we're training and and i actually i feel fitter and stronger than i was before so he's quite impressed because I, I think he's he's quite excited that hopefully now focusing on the tennis i could focus on making sure i don't have any further injury problems and get held back in that respect so i i've managed to make the most of the block but for me now it's just knuckle down on training and then yeah wait and see as to when we're when it's safe for, for me to compete and where that will be and what that looks like so I think that initially it will be some practice matches with teammates. I think it's a good place to start. And uh, I think we'll, we'll move on now to Castor. Is it? Well, me and Tommy were having this conversation. Is it Castor or is it Castori? How do you pronounce it? Castor is what I've always said and what I've always heard. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some words that you Scots say that are quite different <laughs> to me. So, I mean, good to come up with your own one there. But, yeah, I think Castor is something I've always said. Yeah. Well, so, I'll, stick, I'll stick on the fact that it's supposed to be the Greco-Roman Castor and Pollux. So Castor, I would imagine, is the, is the pronunciation of that. Although I happily, you know, look to be proved wrong, but I think it's Castor. Yeah, no, I agree. That's uh, my understanding as well. We've managed to get a Greco-Roman reference in there, so that makes me incredibly happy. 
<laughs> you would think if you asked the ambassador for Castor, she would know how to pronounce it. But anyway, don't 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 say that on air. She might get offended. Um, yeah, right. I'm, so I'm, I'm thinking she, you know, Lauren's nothing to do with Castor anymore. She just takes <laughs> this interview. Uh, is, is the real Lauren Jones in a cupboard? Have you bound her up somewhere? <laughs> see, that's a reference to the outtakes that nobody's ever going to see. Um, but just on Castor and Lauren, did you approach Castor or did Castor approach you? Um, so with Castor, I actually train at the National Tennis Centre um, and used to see Andy and his team all the time and obviously with him wearing the kit and everything. And uh, my agent at the time, I think, approached Castor and I then had a conversation with Andy while we were both in physio and just asked a bit more about the brand. Um, and I think it was after that conversation that I was really quite keen to, to work with them. And thankfully for me, uh, after a conversation with Andy and his team, I think there was a potentially a good word put in from them. I don't know, but I think they definitely um, were keen that I think they thought I would be a good addition to the brand. And I think it's, it's worked out that way. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the team officially. And it was a really nice way to join because I know that Andy himself actually approached Castor um, through one of his coaches wearing the kit. And, and that's very rare for, I think, a top, really successful athlete to ha approach a brand. Obviously, normally the brand's fighting over athletes. I think that says a lot about Castor and it was a very similar situation with me where, where really where I, I liked the kit. And um, it was nice because it was a conversation where actually they were willing to listen to me. And um, yeah, we've built a really successful partnership and it's just the beginning for us because I only just signed with Castor before, before everything happened with Rangers and Castor. So it's exciting times. That is what I was going to ask you. How do you find Castor? Because you've got other companies, your Adidas, your Nikes, that are multinational companies. So do you find that a more intimate relationship with Castor? I, yeah, I think it's amazing. I mean, with the bigger brands, you, there's no chance you're going to be speaking to, to the owner of, of mm. Nike or Adidas as an athlete. It just doesn't really happen. Um, and to be able to just text Tom and have their support, um, and to work directly with the brand in terms of what's good for you, what do you want, what do you need, what these are our plans, what do you think, um, and work together. I mean, you, you just have to look at everything that's happened between Rangers, Castor and myself with how heavily involved I've been, and they've been fully supportive of that. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a really nice, it's nice to be able to be fully engaged with the company, but on top of that, even though Castor aren't yet at the levels of Nike and Adidas, I think they're proving that actually business-wise, they're, they're really, impressive um and not just a, a small company at all um and really making strides so they've got the quality down and also an amazing um, an amazing pair of brothers in terms of obviously at the top of the brand so yeah i think it's it's exciting times and it's nice to be part of a company that i feel want the best for me and have a personal interest in my story just on that um you know obviously you've touched on the fact that you know castor are still at the start of their particular journey but they've already you know own that, that premier sportswear uh, part and it's really important that they engage and they listen not only to you know, Rangers fans but also with the athletes that, that are the ambassadors and obviously that's the driver of the quality of the, the kit that you're, you're talking about there so it's always really you know interesting to hear that from the athletes side um, those marginal gains that, uh, that everybody talks about as well but I'm just thinking for you personally because maybe there's a, a certain outside view the majority of the population have about tennis but it's 
absolutely really important that athletes like yourself do have these sponsorship opportunities and can work with brands because that helps you continue on with your career. Is that is that something that Cascor have been a real uh, door opener for? And and what's your your thoughts on uh, people understanding that there's always other ways to support you as well? Yeah, I mean, in terms of my personal story, the the conversation with Andy actually was I wanted to find out a bit more about the quality of the kit because a lot of people can say like, oh, we're a premium clothing brand or our kit's the best quality, but I guess what clothing brand wouldn't say that? So I wanted to find out a bit more about that. Um, and for me, I was actually having problems where I was training and competing in 40 degrees and where I've got a, a, a lot of metal work in my back. When I sweated and my clothing got slightly wet, the metal work would get cold um, and it was really stiffening up my back and affecting my training. So when Andy said about the quality of the clothing and everything, I wanted to ask if that would actually help. And that's where the conversation led to. And obviously it was an exciting opportunity for Castor as well, because I am a case where they have scientific proof that their clothing is such good quality. Mm -hmm. It actually helps me like medically. Um, so it, 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 that was really helpful for me and to be able to, to work with a brand who can help me because of the quality of their product was, was important. But yeah, the sponsorship side of being a tennis player is really important. Um, and obviously the, we don't have the prize money that, that the able-bodied guys do have just yet. I mean, the game is really developing and it is very professional as a whole. But um, yeah, we rely fully on sponsorship to be able to, to train full-time. And obviously tennis, I think most people know it is an expensive sport as it is. And when you add on the seven eight thousand pound wheelchairs that we need to play and it's not quite as easy as buying a new pair of shoes we have to buy a, a new seven grand tennis chair so there, there's a lot of costs involved but uh yeah it's it's amazing to have the support of 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 amazing brands and companies to to support my career and obviously without that i i don't know where i would be because as much as my best friend has a boat there isn't that much money <laughs> <laughs> Just to actually pick up on that, right, what Tommy was asking, is it quite difficult to try and explain to people? Because, let, let's be honest, everybody's got the, the concept that every tennis player's middle class and they've, and they've got a lot of money. So is it really difficult to try and get that across to people that, no, we need these sponsorships because we need to be able to buy uh, clothing and wheelchairs that were no all multi-millionaires? Yeah, I think, um, to be fair, being actually involved in the sport, I've seen firsthand that a lot of players who have talent that don't have the money don't make it and a lot of players who maybe aren't quite as talented but have the financial backing to be like oh i'm going to go and do five hours six hours of training a day for the next four years they make it and obviously as a sport that's quite difficult and it's something that the lta are working hard to try to get everyone involved in tennis and they have a whole new movement at the moment to try to get everyone involved in tennis to show it's a support that's open to it it's a sport that's open to everyone um and it is difficult because I'm, i've never been someone who in, who finds it easy or enjoys asking for money but if i don't sell myself and be brave enough to say hey, these are my training costs this is the money i need and be creative with that i just wouldn't be able to get anywhere because the training costs are just ridiculous and obviously if you don't have the money you can't train so i'm not going to get to where i want to get to if i can't train so it's a big part of it and that's something i had to learn going to in that transition from juniors into, into seniors. Uh, I needed to in, increase my training. And obviously when I get to the slams, then maybe there's more sponsorship opportunities, but it's really important for me to build meaningful partnerships right now before I've got to the slams to help me get there. 
because it's all very well saying that big companies will be interested when you can represent them at Wimbledon, but you need mm -hmm. companies who are going to be brave enough and fight for you and support you to get there. Um, and for me, yeah, to have the support of, of Castor and also Rangers themselves um, and some, some other big brands that are behind me is really important. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that now because um, obviously Rangers partnered with Castor for the kits and stuff, but did you ever think that one simple tweet that you put out could quite possibly change your life? Not at all, no. And it's something that initially I, I was quite, I, I was a bit scared because I was like, God, have I made this look like I'm a massive lifelong Rangers fan? <laughs> that wasn't the case at the time. But I mean, I just, yeah, I was simply supporting the brand that had been great to me uh, because I truly believe in the products of Castor and I was just excited for Rangers. And obviously I do have the connection with Mertz and that, that was the connection that I was referring to in that I, I followed the club's progress and was really excited when I found out that Rangers was, was the club that Castor would be working with. And I was just excited to share that news. But the, the support that I had from the fans and from the club themselves has been completely overwhelming. But I honestly think this partnership could be life-changing because it's opening so many doors and giving me an opportunity to really build positive, genuine relationships that I think are going to really help me get to where I want to get to. And I hope that as well I can help Rangers fans and the club, um, as well as Castor. So I think it's a it's a win-win. What's your relationship uh, going to look like going forward with Rangers? Uh, there's a lot of exciting conversations that have actually been going on since pretty much that tweet. To be honest, um, it's been it's been really really encouraging. And I mean, James um, at the club is just one of the most incredible people I think I've ever met. And Rangers are really really lucky to have him. Um, and he's he's very creative and thinks very similar to me. And I think we're going to create a movement that has not has not happened. Um, and I really hope it's going to lead the way and be successful. And I think there's a lot of exciting things planned. And also I plan to to get involved with the Rangers Charity Foundation as well because I feel like I can really make a really make a difference. And it's I think Rangers is providing me with a platform to do everything I've wanted to do, both on the court and off court. And the, the thing for me is that it's thanks to the fans that this opportunity has happened. So if I can now give back to the fans and be a voice for the fans in terms of directly working with the club, it, there's really good opportunities for, I think, for everyone. And I'm just excited. But obviously, I can't say too much right now, but there's, there's, there's big news and a lot, a lot to come. Yeah, and a, an ongoing relationship where I think we can really be creative with everything that we can, we can achieve. We've actually, in the last couple of weeks, had some issues with two of the guys that we normally do the podcast with. So there's a space on the podcast if you <laughs> want to get involved in that. <laughs> I'm not sure I can take the boat jokes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, listen, Tommy, is there anything else that uh, you maybe want to ask Lauren before we finish things up? It was, it was actually more, more of a statement uh, in that, and Lauren touched on it there a moment ago, which is, it's great to see people who've got, you know, an inspiring story is one part of you, but it's not it's not all of you. It's more the fact that you've got on board and now a professional athlete. Uh, you're going places quite obviously within your chosen sport. It's nice to see another top athlete joining the uh, the same pantheon as Rangers and Castor. So you get a premier club, a premier tennis athlete, a premier brand, and uh, really looking forward to to what. What that exciting news is, and having you as part of the Rangers slash Castor 
uh, brand as well. That's absolutely brilliant. And from a personal perspective, it's been fantastic speaking to you, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. No, it's amazing. I'm, I'm genuinely really excited. Uh, we're going to have to come up with ways of getting uh, football stadiums worth of fans to tennis venues, I think. <laughs> I'll just compare, obviously. Obviously. But actually, just before I let you go, Lauren, you were saying, obviously, when, when you first put the tweet out, can you remember who was the first person to uh, private message you? Are you going to want me to say you? Uh, well, I mean, that's the answer. <laughs> Let's go with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Listen, that, that, looks, that looks scarily like uh, a sort of Stockholm syndrome uh, stalker. Uh, <laughs> there. This is this is how you treat this type of thing if you're confronted by your stalker on a webcam. <laughs> well, just on that uh, brilliant note there, Tommy, Lauren, listen, <laughs> thanks very much and thanks very much for your time and we'll certainly be keeping an eye on your progress going forward. So thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, no, and I'm excited as well to be able to keep you all up, updated and obviously to work with, with the fan media sites and everything like that is hopefully going to be a way where I can keep everyone up to date. And thank you to you guys, but also just thank you to everyone listening because the support has been phenomenal. And I think I've had incredible people support me throughout my career, both from the very beginning when I first had my accident through to through to success now, but I've never experienced anything like this. And I think the ongoing support and something we mentioned before, obviously I, I post a picture of my dog on the beach and I get like Rangers hearts and everything coming up. <laughs> I'm like, yes, the support's there even for my dog, so. <laughs> and what's been your favorite interview so far? <clears throat> <laughs> All of them. Oh, well, well played, Lauren, well played. That was the only suitable answer to that particular question. <laughs> Lauren, thanks very much. Thank you, guys.